three silhouettes stood out against the otherwise deserted landscape. It was now or never. Having been denied entry into the nation of Saudi Arabia, the men had decided to take matters into their own hands. With a nod from their father, the two sons followed. Having crossed the border, they were now illegals in a foreign land. If caught, the consequences could be severe. The trio made their way across the vast wilderness by relying upon the kindness of strangers to drive them, and eventually, an available taxi agreed to take them to their final destination. The mountain peak stood high against the pure blue canopy of the day. Immediately they went to work, documenting relics of the past, photographing ancient wall art, and seeking to match points of interest to an ancient text. The evidence was astounding, but just as a breakthrough was being made, a vehicle pulled up and ushered them away. The men quickly made their way back to the border, seeking to escape whatever danger might be lurking behind them. Yet as they prepared to slip back across into Jordan, authorities arrived. All three individuals were arrested and charged with being Israeli spies. For 75 days, the father and his sons were interrogated and pressed for information. If convicted of the charges of espionage, they could all be executed. Thankfully, the men were cleared and released, but all they had gathered was confiscated. And upon return, many wanted to know what would cause three Americans to break the law and risk their lives to gain access to Saudi Arabia. The father answered the media with a bold and yet confident claim. He had found the real Mount Sinai and claimed he could prove it. Welcome truth seekers, Bible enthusiasts, and amateur historians from all across the globe. Co-host Brad Horton here, and we're delighted to be joined by our other co-host, Dr. Eric Armstrong. Now, what we've just heard, um, the account of Ron Wyatt searching for Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, this is another location that mankind has been searching for for millennia, just like with the Garden of Eden, as you hopefully heard on our first two episodes. So when I think about Mount Sinai, it's one of the most significant places in all of human history, what's happened there. And, and Pastor, would you agree that what occurred at Mount Sinai, you have the Lord God reaching down to man, and you have him giving basically the backbone for right and wrong, which has stood for millennia. That's one of the most significant events in human history. Would you would you agree with that? In, indeed. As a matter of fact, when we talk about biblical ethics, it, it goes back really to this point uh, where the law was handed down uh, from Mount Sinai. And, and while we see the law that was given there uh, included also ceremonial uh, elements and some law that would go into kind of governmental uh, laws for Israel, uh, at the basis of all of these was the moral law based on the character of God, and that is the basis for ethics. 
Indeed. Um, excellent points there, by the way. And so you, you literally have several occasions at this mountain where God comes down. He meets with mankind. And I know we'll get into that a little later. But, you know, also to your point, Pastor, I'd add, it serves as the backbone for judicial law in this country, the United States. And I mean, it's it's very significant. So one of the first things that comes to mind in our times, our day and age, regarding Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb, is this. Where on earth is it? And how do we lose a mountain that has been so significant for the course of human history? You know, and certainly we have the traditional location there in, in the southern Sinai Peninsula, Jebel Musa, the mountain of Moses. But that location seems to be challenged. And when we weigh it with the facts presented in the Bible, is this really the best location? And so why was this location even chosen? I know, Pastor, you're going to speak to that. Uh, you want to give a, a quick preview as to why this is the traditional location of Mount Sinai today? It has to do with a lot of ancient Christian pilgrims and, and perhaps going back further than that to some Jewish pilgrimages. Uh, but again, it's just guesses. Um, we do not know. And, and really, by the time of the first century, uh, if you go biblically, we, after the age of uh, the prophet Elijah, we do not know. Fascinating. So we're going to do our best to see if we can come up with a plausible explanation here. But we ultimately go back to the Bible. And what does the Bible tell us about Mount Sinai itself? You know, we have markers and, and signposts, if you will, when they sojourn out of, out of Egypt. But the physical location, what does the Bible actually tell us? Very little, uh, the, the physical description. Well, if I can jump in for just a moment, because that amazed me as a child, just how little we actually know about Mount Sinai. With every Bible, and, and this was certainly the case with my childhood Bible, uh, in the back they always have a number of maps, whether it's describing the 12 tribes of Israel or showing you perhaps Paul's missionary journeys. They had one that described the Exodus. But on it I found multiple routes all with question marks. And so you had one going up to the north, you had another going down south into Sinai, another one kind of meandering across the, uh, the peninsula itself, but then it would have Mount Sinai listed with a question mark, or perhaps Elam mentioned with a question mark, and, and it amazed me that we just didn't know where it was. And so you're right, it's very little sometimes it's given to us, so it's hard to look back and, and figure it out. poses a little bit of a challenge, even for biblical scholars. Absolutely. And for our audience, also I would add that we're going to talk about the Exodus in a later episode, just by the way, uh, even though we're focusing on Sinai today. So the Bible doesn't really give us any definitive physical description of the mountain. Can we conclude that it wasn't the tallest peak or that it didn't have any significant features to it? Perhaps. Back to our original question, how did we lose it? Well, we have several possibilities that we want to explore here today. And the first one is this. Perhaps God prevented us from knowing the exact location, just as he did with when he buried Moses. Um, the Israelites to this day, as it, as it records in the scriptures, don't know where Moses was buried. And why is that? Well, because people would be tempted to venerate that site and perhaps even worship that site rather than worship the Creator. Same way with Mount Sinai. Perhaps 
we would be tempted to worship the mountain rather than the creator of the mountain and what the creator of the mountain did, you know, worship the worship what the creator did there rather than the creator himself. So perhaps God has prevented us from knowing. Well, another possibility is that perhaps Mount Sinai was very well known to Moses' audience at the time of writing. Egypt, certainly a dominant force within a great empire at this time, and perhaps it was common knowledge within the Egyptian empire with Midian, Canaan, where, where Mount Sinai was located, and perhaps there wasn't an explanation needed. Now, I say this knowing full well that Moses gave a great description of the location and topography around Eden, but remember, when he's writing about Eden, he's writing about something that happened probably several, almost several millennia in, in the past, whereas... When he's talking about Mount Sinai, he's writing to his contemporaries in the present time. So perhaps it was common knowledge which mountain was Mount Sinai, even though it maybe, you know, didn't have any significant features. And I say this one point about that is Mount Bunnell down just to the west of the city of Austin. Now, while Mount Bunnell is considered the tallest mountain, actually a hill, there's no, there's no significant features that would help you identify it. It does have a great lookout point, great view of the city. You can see some great geological formations from the lookout point. But there's nothing significant about Mount Bunnell that says, man, there's Mount Bunnell. However, to anyone in Central Texas, you drive by it, you can point it out. And so maybe that's the case with Mount Sinai as well. It was just, there was nothing significant about it within the mountain range or range of hills, whatever, that it was located. And speaking of markers that people would have known, uh, those also change over time. And, and I began thinking about this. Uh, there's only two ways that we really give directions to something. Uh, today, we'll describe, if I'm describing a location to someone, well, you're going to go north on Central Street, and then you're going to take, uh, you're going to go east on Main Street. Uh, it's by using the, the points of the compass. We go north, we go south, we go east, we go west. But there's another way of giving directions, and this is what the Bible uses. We do it by markers. So in essence, you're going to drive down the road until you see the McDonald's. And when you get to McDonald's, you're going to take a right, and you're going to drive until you get to the light, uh, with a racetrack gas station on the corner. And that is how the Bible tends to describe the wilderness wanderings. It gives us directions. It gives us markers. But I began thinking, why then can we not follow the markers? But think about how quickly things change. Uh, if I go back to my home where I grew up, and I'm thinking about the McDonald's that was sitting there on the corner, it may have closed down five years ago. And maybe now it's a Burger King. And therefore, the marker that I gave is no longer recognizable. And if that can happen in a decade, we're talking about roughly 3,400 years ago, describing these markers that existed. Springs could have dried up. Sandstorms could have carried things away. Erosion could have made some of these markers less recognizable. And so then, even if we have a map, the map may have changed, and, and that poses a problem where when Moses described to his contemporaries, they knew where he was talking about, and yet for us now, 3,400 years later, what has changed with those markers? That, that poses a, a great challenge to us. Absolutely. A fascinating question. And also, I would add that seismic activity in the region is prevalent, especially over the last 3,400 years. You know, it might have been some significant changes to the topography. And I think that's an excellent point that you make there, Pastor. So the final thing I want to pose as to why we may have lost sight of it, and this is something that's 
puzzled a lot of experts and modern scholars over the years is the lack of Egyptian preservation. A lot, you know, the Egyptian remains that we have today, there's not a lot of information about this, not a lot of information about the Exodus. Now, I happen to think there is if you're looking in the right time period in the right place, but that's a conversation for a different podcast. But regarding the lack of evidence from ancient Egypt is this. Remember this. The plagues, the killing of the firstborn, the sinking of at least a significant division of their military in the Red Sea. Now, this was a crushing defeat. It was humiliating to Egypt. Every plague that God instituted on Egypt was a direct assault on one of their false gods. And in the ancient world, it was a sign of defeat on that particular civilization when their gods were defeated. All right, so we wouldn't expect to necessarily have a wealth of information about these events surrounding the Exodus in Egyptian history because it was humiliating to them. The, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at the time, they're not going to memorialize something that's embarrassing to them, something that's humiliating to them. And actually, the Egyptians were kind of notorious for this. But, Pastor, when you think about it, we're really not much different today. No, not not at all. I mean, you think about how we talk about our accomplishments. Take a football player. Uh, he's going to talk about the longest uh, kicker, longest field goal that he's kicked, but he's not going to really necessarily tell you about the shortest one he's missed. Uh, we want to overlook a lot of these defeats and focus on on victories, and absolutely, just as, as we do today, so they did back then. Absolutely. And take the, the case of American history. We've got a, a grand history. God has richly blessed our country. But look back to the Revolutionary War. We have great monuments, an entire battlefield preserve dedicated to Washington's great victory at Yorktown. Got a chance to spend uh, a morning there a couple years back, and it was amazing. You can just see God's providence at work, how Washington laid the siege, and things just happened to go right. And then the I mean, it, it was amazing. You also have the memorial or, or monument, military park, what have you, at Valley Forge. A rough moment, but it was kind of Washington rallied the troops. They endured, and they were ready to persevere. That's memorialized. Well, what about Washington's humiliating defeat in New York City? Where's the monument for that? I mean, the, the Continental Army was crushed. They had to retreat, almost blown up. The whole cause was almost lost, but there's not much to that. And another fact I would make, you know, you go to Washington, D.C. today. You have all these wonderful monuments, wonderful memorials to great moments in American history. Where's the monument to the British burning down the White House in the War of 1812? So we're not much different today than the Egyptians were. So it, the exodus was humiliating. It was a defeat to them. So we would not expect them to have, you know, the, the whole events memorialized and stylized all throughout their architecture. Well, now we see how easy it is to lose a mountain. So the question turns to how do we find a mountain? And really to do that, we need to go back to the scripture. That is where we've got our information on Sinai. And so the more we understand its importance, uh, what occurred on the mountain, then perhaps we can know what happened to it. And if we turn back to the pages of scripture, the first mention that we find of Sinai is during the days of Moses. Moses has now fled from Egypt and is living in the country uh, of the Midianites. And he has married a Midianite woman, works for his father-in-law herding sheep. 
and were told that one day as he was herding sheep in the midst of the wilderness, on the edge of the wilderness, that he catches a sight out of the corner of his eye, and it amazes him because he finds a, a bush that is burning, uh, which perhaps would not have been unusual. It's hot in the desert. Uh, perhaps maybe it, it, it caught fire, but he notices it doesn't burn down. Uh, it's not consumed, and so he comes close to this burning bush, and the voice of God speaks to him, asking him to, to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground. And there we see the association of God with this mountain. But it's not the mountain itself that is holy. It's the presence of God that, that makes the place holy. And it was at this place God came down and began to speak, first to Moses and then later to the Israelites. As a matter of fact, he commands Moses from Mount Sinai to go back to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh, the, the line that we almost always associate with Moses, uh, that Pharaoh was to let God's people go. And that's exactly what unfolded. Uh, after being freed then from slavery through the remarkable work of God, the people gathered, all 12 tribes gathered, hundreds of thousands of people and then it was at this location that God delivered the law. And while we generally think of the, the Ten Commandments, uh, that was not all that was given at this location. In essence, God told the people what was required to be considered righteous in his sight. And every law given was a reflection of his perfect character. It, it showed what is good and true and righteous. And it's interesting because we've talked about the Garden of Eden and what was lost in the Garden of Eden. In essence, mankind sinned. Mankind broke that relationship with God, and there was nothing that we could do to attain it. And yet, where we could not step up to God, God stepped down to mankind. And we see that at Sinai as he speaks the law, showing us what would be required for us to be able to walk into his presence. But as God did this, the Israelites, and really mankind today, still takes the law in the wrong way. In essence, many people looked at the law of God and they thought, I can do this. I can please God on my own. But that was not the message that God intended at all. The law was given to show us that we've already failed at being righteous. It was to show us our guilt, not to inspire some sort of man-made confidence. And the very atmosphere around Sinai showcased this truth. You see, as the people gathered on the plain below and looked up at that peak, the sight before them inspired fear and trembling. The biblical book of Exodus gives us the picture. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. 
And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Exodus 19, 16 through 21. The people were to see how great and powerful was the God that they served. Ultimately, they were to see his holiness and purity, and then by contrast, see their own sin. In fact, barriers were set up around the mountain so that no one would get too close and then be struck down dead in God's presence. And while that punishment may sound dreadful, that is what we're told sin deserves. It's by God's grace that they persisted on earth, and the the same is true of all of us today. So why did God want to show them their sin? So that it would point them to their need for a Savior. They were to see the law and their inability to keep it, and then look towards God for mercy and grace. That is the lesson learned at Sinai. And after it had been given, it was when the people marched away from this grand side of God's work that they headed to the promised land, to the future that the Lord had planned, a future purposed with redemption and life if they would but trust in him. That's the significance of Sinai. So they start grumbling against God almost immediately. Rather than responding in faith, they complain, oh, I wish we were still slaves back in Egypt. At least we had food. Now, mind you, they did nothing but complain and grumble when they were in Egypt as slaves, right? And so they don't respond in faith as they should have. And that's, that's a, you know, a point I hear a lot of skeptics say today is, well, why doesn't God just show himself? Well, he did at a time and he didn't get the response he desired. They didn't respond in faith. They responded with grumbling. You know, in, in the Bible study class I teach, we kind of poke fun of the Exodus generation of the Israelites. But sadly, I wonder, you know, and, and I do too. I mean, I'm guilty of it too. You know, we always kind of, uh, there they are grumbling, you know, well, we're tired of the manna, we're tired of the quail, but, you know. But would we have been any different ourselves? Are we any different ourselves today? And I don't know that we are because, you know, a lot of times we try to respond with our own righteousness rather than being clothed with the righteousness bestowed on us by the grace of God through Christ. And they may have failed time and time again, but God actually was not done speaking to us at Mount Sinai for we find the location revisited. Now, it was hundreds of years later during the time of the kings uh, in the nation of Israel. And really, it was a time where you had two nations of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom that retained the name Israel. And during the time of the kings, you had a man named Elijah, a prophet of God, speaking at a very wicked time in the life of the nation. And, And upon a great victory where God displayed his power on Mount Carmel, the wicked queen Jezebel threatened God's prophet, promising to execute him if she could find and arrest him. And so Elijah fled, fled for his life. And and where did he wind up? Except on the slopes of Sinai. And upon arrival, he hid in a cave upon its slopes. Now, he was terrified. He had no idea what would come of him. He trusted in God, but he was very fearful that his life would be taken. And now, rather than speaking in smoke and fire, God actually spoke to Elijah in a different way. And I want you to see this transition uh, that we find in Scripture. 
1 Kings 19, 11 through 13, read. And this is God speaking to Elijah. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? You see, unlike before, the Lord spoke to his fearful servant here with a whisper, with encouragement, and, and gave him the strength to carry forward. The God who had given the law to show his holiness and our sin also here shows his love and grace to one who had come before him in faith and trust. And so here at Sinai, you find the character of God on display to a watching world. We, we do see a God who judges sin, but also a God who wants to redeem. And so for very good reason, Sinai has become known as the mountain of God. And this is why it inspires so many people to want to see the place where God stepped down to speak with mankind. After all, it happened in human history. It is a very real location. And we, although we may not know the exact place, it is here on earth. It's still around. And this is why we wonder where it may be located. And, you know, just to add on that great account there, Pastor, um, but, you know, you see the three appearances or, or three visits that God makes here at this mountain, and each one reveals a different nature of his character. The first one, the burning bush, he appears in, in fire, this this purity, this this unapproachable light, if you will. Then the second time with the giving of the law, he appears, as you said, in, in judgment and righteousness. Um, and then the third time, as you mentioned, redemption and grace. And again, what a, what a beautiful picture of our God's character that he reveals to us here at this location. Not only that, but if you think about the connections of Mount Sinai, both to Moses and Elijah, you can connect both figures to an appearance on another mountain. If you go to the New Testament, to the one who will make redemption possible, where Christ stands on a mountain and is transfigured, where his disciples are able to look and see the glory of Christ, who are the two figures standing beside him? Moses and Elijah. And I would also add, I found it interesting that even though Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land, he was with Christ uh, later on. And I've always found that fascinating that, that he did get into the promised land finally. Found true rest, not just in a, a land, but he found a true rest in the person of Christ. And indeed, that's what it all points us towards. An amazing truth given to us in history. So where do we start looking to find it? All right, well, if we know the history and we know where Scripture leaves off with Sinai. It does not return to it. Um, where do we begin? 
what exactly then are the ancient map directions that were given to us? We talked about how the markers may have changed over the course of time. Uh, but what can we still say definitively from those ancient markers? Well, we know that Sinai has to be somewhere between Egypt and really Israel uh, in this area that would be today called the Sinai Peninsula or else the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. You see, along the path to the site, the Israelites would have traveled to a number of these, these sites that we find listed. And if you want to find the entire list of markers and places that they stopped, Numbers chapter 33 gives everything. It, it, as a matter of fact, adds some additional details not given to us in the book of Exodus. But as they traveled, we have to remember, they're not going to go just in a straight line. This, this isn't like an American highway system. Rather, you would travel from water spot to water spot. In order to make it through a desert, you've got to be able to survive the desert. And so it didn't go in a straight line. Excellent point. And one thing I would add to that is the 40 years that Moses spent in Midian, he would have likely become acquainted with some of these watering holes that they would have moved in. And another thing to keep in mind is I think the traditional estimate that people could travel in those days would be six to seven miles a day. But I would, I would argue and suggest that the Hebrews moved a lot slower for the fact they had to go to water, they had to young and old, they had all this livestock. So they're probably lucky if they get two to three miles a day. I'm sure Moses probably felt like most parents feel on road trips as kids constantly have to stop for a bathroom break. Uh, indeed, yeah, I don't think that they move fast either. You can pull up things on MapQuest and, and instantly add several hours to it if you're driving with kids. Moses was traveling with a lot of, of individuals, and I agree. They, they move very slow and in some type of zigzag pattern uh, with these markers. So what are they? How can we narrow down the, the footprint? And again, in essence, we're looking either in the Sinai Peninsula proper, which received the name uh, because of the traditional site's location, or Northwest Arabia. And if you look in this footprint, really there, there are three, four, five suggestions. A lot of mountains are suggested in there, but we're going to take a look just at three of those, uh, beginning with what is most often called Mount Sinai, uh, the traditional location. Well, in most Bibles, and for the majority of church history, one mountain has been held forth as Mount Sinai, a mountain that is known as Jebel Musa. Uh, it sits in the southern portion of what is today known as the Sinai Peninsula. And really, indeed, the entire peninsula, I mentioned, received this name after the mountain was deemed to be the biblical location. So the mountain was named first and then the peninsula after it, not the other way around. Now, this peninsula, and I would encourage, if you get a chance, as long as you're not driving, listening to this, to be able to take a look at a map, it'll help uh, you to picture easier what we're describing, but we'll still try our best to, to present a little bit of a word picture. Sinai Peninsula is surrounded by water on three sides. It, it looks almost like a arrowhead that's pointing downward. And on the north, you have the Mediterranean Sea. And then to the west lay an arm of the Red Sea that's known as today as the Gulf of Suez. And to the east lays the other arm of the Red Sea that comes around the peninsula, and it's called the Gulf of Aqaba. And so in essence, like this arrowhead pointing downward, you've got water on three sides, and the width of the land diminishes as you go south, and, and it comes to a point. 
Only at the top does the land connect to Egypt in the west and then to Arabia or, or the continent of Asia in the east. Now, at some point, a mountain called Jebel Musa in the south-central part of the peninsula was identified as the biblical Sinai. But the question really is, is why and, and when did it gain this designation? And in truth, while there's some evidence that Jewish pilgrims traveled to this site and, and revered it as Sinai, it really took Christian aesthetics to bring it to prominence. During the early years of the church, as the persecution from Rome intensified on Christians, you would have some believers flee from cities and into the wilderness. But on top of this, you also had a movement of some believers that wanted to leave the world behind. They thought it was best to abandon the world and commune with God in solitude. And so whether fleeing from persecution or in essence, what would later become kind of a, a monk-type community, individuals that would migrate into the wilderness to be alone with God. And in the Sinai Peninsula, the site in which they landed was Jebel Musa. Why? Water was present. Some grassland is there. And so they stayed, and before long, more and more people claimed that this was Sinai. You know, and it's it's certainly been the traditional location, and, you know, discovered a by the Empress Helena, but it does have some problems. And just to discuss a couple of those, the first one is the logistics of it, being that, you know, we're told that roughly 600,000 Hebrew men left Egypt. And so when you think about women and children, we're probably north of 2 million people, maybe more, plus all the livestock that they took with them. And with, with Jebel Musa, there's really not a place for them to camp, as the Bible tells us that they camped around the mountain. And and this is a great point, a good sticking point, and, and one mentioned a lot. And the way that some biblical scholars will try to get around this is where you have Jebel Musa, in in reality, you've got kind of a mountain range that has three peaks on it. And, and Jebel Musa is right in the middle. And surrounding, though, these three peaks, uh, one is called Mount Catherine, then you've got Mount Sinai or, or Jebel Musa. I'm forgetting the name of the third. I don't have it before me. But what some of these scholars will argue is that it really was another one of the peaks in this Sinai range that they've named. Um, and that's where you see some of these monasteries that, that were built. As you kind of mentioned with, with Helena, when Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire, this is where this site was solidified as Mount Sinai. And if you remember, he ultimately had to fight to become the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. And one night before a great battle, he had a dream. And in his dream, he says that he had seen written in the sky words that read, in this you shall conquer. And the sign that he saw were the first two letters of the name of Christ. It was it was the two Greek letters uh, of the first of the name of Christ. And so they sewed this on, on their shields. They put it on their shields, went into battle, and basically won. And so Constantine then was well on his way to becoming a believer. And as a believer, he stopped the persecution of Christians. But his mother, uh, who he named the Empress Helena, she also was interested 
in being able to uncover more of Christianity and, and some of the sites. And so, really, if you look at her, she claims to have found quite a bit. But one of the, the sites that she claims to have found is Mount Sinai, and it's not from a study of Scripture. It's not from a study of geography. Rather, she was almost kind of a mystic. And she just claimed that God told her this was the site. And so this is why originally you had a chapel constructed there. And then years later, Emperor Justinian I had St. Catherine's Monastery built on the site. And it, that may not be where your mind went when you thought this is why it's called Mount Sinai. But those three peaks uh, with Jebel Musa being in the middle, then all became associated with Sinai. And so some will claim that it is either the peak of Mount Catherine or the one directly south of what is traditionally called Mount Sinai has a plain large enough then to to fit the people. Okay, and you know, and that makes sense. You know, Mount Rainier, just uh, to the southeast of Seattle, has multiple peaks as well. Uh, beautiful mountain, by the way. And, you know, a, a word on the Empress Helena, if you will. I, I don't want to sit here and, and cast stones at her, but she did, as you mentioned, Pastor, she made some pretty remarkable finds. And, you know, one of these is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And just because they can't see, you gave remarkable in air quotes here. So, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, I think there is some evidence for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being the place of Christ's crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, which we will discuss in another podcast. But she also claimed to find the cross of Christ, his crown of thorns, the nails. And, Without a lot of evidence backing it up. And like you said, there's really not evidence why she named Sinai Sinai other than it was just kind of mysticized. And that's my problem with it. And another issue that I do have with this location is that, you know, when the Hebrews are first released out of Ramesses, they, the northeast portion of modern-day Egypt, if you will, because this is where Jacob's descendants ultimately settled, they traveled to Succoth. And the Bible tells us that we first hear of this place, Succoth, in Genesis, when Jacob is traveling back to Canaan. Now, when you think about the geography there in the Sinai Peninsula, if they leave out of Egypt, go to Succoth, and then Sinai, that's quite a ways for Jacob to travel out of his way. You know, so again, if he's, if he's going back to the land of Canaan, it seems that he's going way out of his way to go to Succoth, if I understand it, where it is there in the, the Sinai Peninsula. So I guess another explanation for this could be, well, are there two different Succoths? I don't know. It doesn't seem that they're referring to different places in Genesis chapter 33, I believe, and then here in the Exodus. So it, that's, you know, I, that's, again, another problem I have with the traditional location, Jebel Musa. And, and I agree with you. I, I think this site has too many... <sighs> points of evidence probably going against it to consider it the the genuine location and, and there are a lot of ardent defenders and and we know kind of what they'll appeal to because it, indeed it has some things that match up uh, with what would be the location of of Sinai water was certainly present at, at the time we see that today with the monastery and, and actually a settlement down there uh, they do have water there's there's available uh, grass for livestock it is probably about an 11-day journey from Kadesh Barnea, as we see in Scripture. And the Jewish historian Josephus claimed that Mount Sinai was the tallest peak in the area. And yes, Jebel Musa and the peaks around it are the highest in the area. But, but I think it misses a lot of other markers that 
and I think this is why we can eliminate it. It, it really seems, one, too remote. We have to remember that not too far from Sinai, the Amalekites attacked them, and this is far from the Amalekites' territory. Uh, they live just south of, of Canaan uh, and, and up towards the Dead Sea. Plus, as far as we know, there is no cave in the mountain. And, and Elijah utilized a cave in the face of the mountain. Plus, at the time of the Exodus, the, the peninsula this far south, I think you may have mentioned, Egyptians. Uh, Egyptians mined in the southern part of the peninsula, and that would have been a reason for the Israelites to go around it. The, the greatest piece of evidence for this being Mount Sinai is just tradition. It's dated back to antiquity. That's why it's, it persisted. And, and why would it continue today? Uh, tourism dollars, probably. It's become a huge site for tourism. But as far as historical evidence, archaeological evidence, geological evidence, I think we could probably rule out Jebel Musa as one of the sites. But luckily, there's other alternatives. So another possibility that has gained more traction in recent times, I say recent, like over the past 150 years or so, is that Mount Sinai located in the current nation, or what we know currently as Saudi Arabia. So this is certainly possible, depending, in my opinion, on where the Red Sea crossing took place. Now, there are several locations in Saudi Arabia that could be, but for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on a mountain known as Jebel al-Laws, which both Ron Wyatt and Dr. Bob Kornick kind of disputed that they both found. And, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into this, the dispute. I mean, you know, they both found it as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but, you know, we talked a little bit about Ron Wyatt. Um, Bob Kornick has a Ph.D. in Biblical Studies and Theologies from Louisiana Baptist University, current president of the Bible Archaeology Search and Exploration Institute. He's lectured to audiences all over the world. He, um, I believe he has a connection with President George W. Bush, and I believe somebody in the Trump administration actually, I don't know if nominated or suggested, he actually be nominated for the ambassadorship to Ethiopia. He's also a former FBI agent. So he, he posits that Mount Sinai is located at Jebel or Mount Sinai is Jebel Al-Laws located in current Saudi Arabia. Now, you know, one thing I like about Mr. Kornick is that he's not definitive. He says the research is ongoing and he presents evidence and quite some astounding claims as well as this location. But, you know, this this location is kind of in northwest Saudi Arabia. And, you know, both he and Ron Wyatt disputed over who found it first. That's beyond our scope here. So the thing with, with Jebel El-Laws is you do have a mountain that's, that's kind of pushing. I mean, can we, can we assume, and based on our best calculations, that the Israelites traveled roughly 75 to 125 miles, leaving Ramses before they got to Mount Sinai? Somewhere in that vicinity, I would say. Maybe that, that's a bit of a stretch when you're dealing with Jebel El-Laws here. But it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Now, you know, another thing with this location is, it, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is it depends on where the Israelites cross the Red Sea. Now, if they cross the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba, basically that northeast bay out of the Red Sea, then this is a lot more plausible. If they crossed in the Suez Canal or the main body of the Red Sea, then that might not be quite as, quite as possible. 
Now, with the Jebel Alwala's location, there's some pretty remarkable claims that Mr. Cornick and Mr. Wyatt both made. And, you know, I've not been there and investigated it myself, but looking at pictures on the Internet, it looks like there is a charred top to this mountain, potentially what we see in the Bible. Now, could something like that stand for 35, 3,400 years? Possibly. I don't know. I'm, I, I can't speak to that, but it, is, it was pretty remarkable. You also have pictures that uh, Mr. Cornick and, and I think Mr. White, maybe to a lesser extent, have posted, but a potential location for the altar of the golden calf, Moses' altar, and the 12 pillars, a potential location for the split rock. Now, I know rocks split in the desert all the time, but that was, that did pique my curiosity quite a bit. You know, and even you've got a potential location for the cave that Elijah hid in. Additionally, which is important to me, is you've got a, a camp, a place for the camp for the Israelites. Again, 600,000 men. And when you think about in totality, probably northwards of several million people, not to mention all the livestock that they had with them. So this, this fits um, in terms of what we need based on the Bible's description. And, you know, I would be remiss if I also didn't mention that there, you know, another location that's kind of got some movement here in maybe the last 20, 30 years, Jebel Hadi, near the village of Harib in modern Saudi Arabia. But this is much further south, almost in present-day Yemen. And I just don't think that that's plausible, given what we know that the Israelites had to travel from water source to water source. And I mean, that's you're looking like a 300-mile journey in a matter of, what, 45 days? That's That's quite a stretch. So with that being said, there are some problems with this Saudi location in general. First being the Red Sea crossing. Did they cross in the Gulf of Aqaba? If they didn't, then I think we may have a problem with Saudi Arabia. But if they did, well, then it makes a lot more sense. So the thing about the Gulf of Aqaba, could this possibly be accurate? Well, there's some evidence for this. King Solomon built his port at Elof on the Gulf of Aqaba. And I believe the same, or at least a very similar term, is used to describe the body of water that we call the Gulf of Aqaba that's used to describe the Hebrew crossing and the body of water where King Solomon built his ports. Now, I'm not an expert on linguistics or language or anything like that, but it seems kind of too close to be a coincidence, if you will. So if that's the case, then, you know, maybe that Gulf of Aqaba crossing is more legitimate. Now, Pastor, we also have a location or uh, maybe potential problem with this location based on what the Apostle Paul told us about the location of Sinai. One of the, a lot of comments that we saw when researching this is that a lot of people will say proof that this is in Saudi Arabia is that that's what Paul said. Paul claimed that Sinai was in Arabia. Uh, the problem with that is the way he used the term would have been the way that the Romans used the term. And, and the region at the time was known as Arabia Petra, but that encompassed not only Saudi Arabia, it also encompassed the Sinai Peninsula. So really, Paul, although it looks from our modern terminology like he narrows down the location for us, in essence, it still keeps it open because what he was referencing at the time is basically the same general area we're referencing today. Now, another thing, you know, is it possible or plausible that what we talk about Midian in the Bible, could that encompass a portion of Saudi Arabia today? 
It did. I, I think it did. I think the, the, you know, the Midianites, to a degree, were a tribe that kind of was more nomadic. And they had a region in which they would journey and travel. And, and this certainly includes that northwestern part of Saudi Arabia uh, into the Negev, perhaps a little bit, uh, which is south of, of Israel, uh, south of the Dead Sea. But they wandered around a bit. And a lot of people wonder if they just refer to the whole region as Midian or wherever they were, that was Midian. But yes, I, I do think that that lends a little bit of credence if we think that Sinai was in the country of the Midianites. Saudi Arabia is a plausible location. That's fantastic and, and fascinating at the same time. To conclude with Mount Sinai being located in present-day Saudi Arabia, geographically, you know, this there is some evidence that this is the case. Um, Distance-wise, it's kind of tough. And, you know, when you think of the other location and the, the traditional location there in Sinai, that just doesn't seem plausible for the reasons we've mentioned above. And also, you know, at the time of the what we refer to as the Sinai Peninsula today, there were Egyptian military outposts there and also Egyptian trading outposts there. And I think that that would pose a problem for 600,000 Hebrews wandering around in the desert at the time. So, you know, I, I think there there's a lot of evidence in favor of the Saudi Arabia location, particularly maybe even Jebel al-Laws. But again, I can't say with with certainty. And I think, you know, anybody that tries to say with certainty, that's that's a tough claim to make. So maybe, maybe we'll find out someday. Maybe we won't. And that's what I thought was neat on this location. All of the books, I think, that we've researched and read talked about how this site was off limits, um, that more research was needed. Um, but this one, we may actually get some more evidence from. And in recent years, Saudi Arabia has opened up their travel to all types of tourism, including religious tourism. And I had uh, read a story not too long ago that there are some companies even offering trips to this location that you can look at it and be able to take in the evidence for yourself. So maybe some more research will be done. Maybe we'll have an update for this later in another podcast. Uh, but as for now, a lot going forward geographically, but as Brad said, a lot going against it distance-wise from Egypt. Two possibilities down, one to go. And this one deals with a north-central route through the Sinai. Uh, indeed, this is an intriguing possibility to me. Uh, and what this one would mean is that the Israelites crossed the arm of the Red Sea, known as the Gulf of Suez, uh, but what they did is they remained in more or less kind of a straight line going through the peninsula rather than turning south. Now, we know from Scripture that they avoided the road out of Egypt that ran along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This was called the Way of the Philistines because it led up to the Philistine territory, but God specifically kept them from this well-traveled road. Exodus 3.17 tells us, Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go... God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Thus, we know this well-known ancient route was avoided. But was there another path that travelers took towards Egypt, another ancient road that would have been available? And here's where we come to a name of a place called Shur, S-H-U-R. It seems to be a land or wilderness that connected ancient Egypt to ancient Canaan. And we really first see it mentioned as God finds Ishmael's mother 
in the desert after she fled Abraham's wife, Sarah. In Genesis 16, 7, it tells us this. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So from Canaan, going southwest, you would find Shur. And where did it end, if, if we know that you come to it going out of Canaan? Well, Genesis 25, 18 tells us where Ishmael and his descendants settled. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt as one goes towards Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. So if you're exiting Egypt, you're going to come into the wilderness of Shur, which is south now of uh, the way of the Philistines. Thus, we have a road here that goes from Egypt to Canaan that most likely would have been known as the Way of Shur. And where does Moses go after they cross the Red Sea? Exodus 15:22 tells us, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, at this point, they ended up going back a little bit towards the Red Sea, that arm of the Red Sea known as the Gulf of Suez. But they would then head east again towards Sinai. And, and the evidence now for this northern route, this north-central route, would be because they were attacked by the Amalekites. And this group of people were active south of Canaan and along the way to Shur, but they were not active in, in the south part of the Sinai Peninsula. In addition, had Israel continued south into the peninsula, they would have soon encountered more Egyptians and their mining operations. So no, they most likely headed into the wilderness south of the way of Shur, but still in the north central part of the Sinai Peninsula. And this works well, because the fact is that the Midianites pastured these regions as well. Somewhat nomadic, as we mentioned, they would have camped to the east, closer to modern-day Saudi Arabia, but they would have driven their flocks towards the Sinai, as Moses did. So in the north, you've got the Amalekites, you've got the Midianites, and you have no Egyptians. Thus, we, we come to a region just to the east here of the northernmost reaches of the Gulf of Aqaba. And this region would be about 45 days from Egypt, about 11 days from Kadesh Barnea, and within striking distance of the land of Midian. And so we've got a solid footprint here now to search but what peak in this region would be Sinai? Well, we've got one very interesting peak, and that is, I be believe the pronunciation is Har Karkom. It is a plateau. It's, it's, it's a topped mountain. There is a series of caves nearby, which would have served well for Elijah when he came. And there's water around. There is room for camps outside this mountain, because remember, we've got likely over several million people, plus all the multitudes of livestock that came with them out of Egypt and water. And additionally, what's fascinating about this site is there is there are signs of worship to God, to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob around this, dating from around 34, 35, or, or excuse me, dating back 34, 3500 years around this time period. So you have people worshiping the God of the Hebrews, our God, right? The God of the universe. And that's fascinating. And, you know, by all 
as limited as the geographical and physical descriptions of Sinai are from the Bible, I think this place fits the bill. But there's one major problem with it, Pastor, and that is it's in the Negev located in Canaan, the promised land already. So would Mount Sinai be in the land that God promised the Hebrews? I tend to think not. And that's that's that was really crushing to me during this research because I'm sitting here thinking, this is it, this is it, this is it. Until I read that it's in Canaan. And so although kind of in the in the geographic footprint of all of these areas that we talked about, uh, I would agree. In, in Canaan, it may be just a little too close here to Kadesh Barnea, but there's another location. And and I've got a, an expert on my side with this location. Uh, he's he's a you know, he's already a great archaeologist because uh, he talked to us a lot about the resting place of the Titanic. That's right. I'm talking about Director James Cameron, uh, the uh, the expert on also the Navi civilization from Avatar, uh, actually once produced a, a documentary dealing with the location of Mount Sinai. And the peak that he talked about in that documentary really is a good candidate for Mount Sinai. It's within this footprint that we've talked about, a little bit northeast of uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. And the name of this mountain is Hashem El Tarif. It fits well with many of the things that are needed at Sinai. One, it almost has kind of this cliff that gives way to a very a naturally formed amphitheater where you could indeed hear what was being said. It has a large plain for many, many people to camp in front of it. And it has an ancient spring, now dried up, that would have run down from the mountain. And if you remember, when Moses ground up the golden calf, he threw it into a stream coming down from the mountain, and that's what the people had to, to drink. Plus, it also has evidence of ancient Midianite pottery close to the site. Is it Sinai? Well, we can't say for sure, but it certainly is a good candidate. So we've discussed several possibilities for the location of Mount Sinai. We've got the traditional location there in the Sinai Peninsula. We've talked about Saudi Arabia. We've talked about the more northern uh, location here. Now, can we say with certainty any of these? I don't think so. And I think anyone that does say with certainty, I would be highly skeptical of that. So what can we conclude? Has God written the last page on this? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe he's decided to keep it shrouded because... He doesn't want us to worship what he created. He wants us to remember him, to worship him. What did he what he did there was significant, not necessarily the mountain itself. I mean, the mountain wouldn't be anything if if not for what God did there and what God was pointing to. And, you know, as as every episode we uh we've made plain from the very beginning, our our point is to point us back to the ultimate authority on this, God's word. And, you know, as you mentioned, Pastor, what God was trying to get across at Mount Sinai was that none of us are righteous. None of us can approach God on our terms. We need a Savior to be able to do that. Well, as much as we'd like to be able to write the last page on this particular topic, uh, as you said, we, we can't as far as the location goes. But I think you're absolutely right as far as theological truth. Absolutely, the last page is, is written um, because... The mountain of Sinai is important because of what took place there. It was holy because God's presence was there. But we no longer have to gather at the base of a mountain to find God's presence. We can go directly to Jesus Christ. 
And Scripture itself points us in that direction. For at Sinai, God made us aware of our sin, but we're told on another mountain, Mount Zion, Christ bled and died so that we could be freed from our sins and made alive. So the search for Sinai really is kind of a search for a relationship with God. At this mountain, God called a people to himself, but he pointed to their sin. And then he pointed forward to a Savior who would come to save them from their sins so that they could come to him. And now that that time's come. We do not need Sinai to find God's presence. We can have it in Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with these words from Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 to contemplate. And until next time, keep following the scriptures, keep studying the forgotten, and keep striving to finish the story to pen the last page. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. 